All right, it's good to be with you this morning. If we haven't met, my name's Brad. I'm one of the elders here. And uh, we don't usually do uh, announcements uh, before the message, but I want to very much encourage you, if you have not heard about Connected Weekend, it is coming up in, in just a couple of weekends, around the corner of February 21st and 22nd. This is not uh, just specifically a marriage conference for, for couples. Um, the content is going to be directed towards marriage, but we want single adults, couples to be there. And uh, our friend Jeff Schulte is going to be in town, and Jeff is going to be teaching us about emotional health. You've probably heard me refer to Jeff. Uh, I've spent some time with him and just thank the Lord for the way in which um, God has really begun to open my heart um, in ways that I was just unaware of the way in which I'd shut areas of my heart down. And um, God's used Jeff in a great way in my life and in my wife Katie's life. And uh, we're, he's actually ministered to our whole Soma family of churches. And um, he was with us in San Diego just a couple of weeks ago. And so he's also uh, written the study, The Voice of the Heart. Um, Jeff started a little church in Nashville several years ago called Fellowship Bible Church. It grew to about 4,000. And then he just blew his life up. And he, he's going to tell you about that journey. And that was the beginning of the journey of the voice of the heart. So he's going to be with us. So all that to say, um, really invite you to come out. Friday night and Saturday, we're going to be at our uh, friend's church, Mosaic, um, over in Valentine Evergreen on Friday night. Then we'll all be here on Saturday. Two churches coming together for this connected conference. You can sign up today. Stacy's going to be in the back. And um, if you've got a check or cash or a card, she can swipe it. It's $10 a person. So that'll get you dinner and um, a, whole, a whole conference weekend. So I hope that you'll begin uh, signing up for that. Hugely excited about it. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 14. 2 Samuel 14. As you guys know, we've been studying the life of David. And by the way, if you've been following along in your CBR journal... If you've been following along in your reading, some of you guys are laughing because you know where I'm headed. You read the chapters that we're studying today. You read them Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Now, if you have no idea what a CBR journal is, uh, it stands for Community Bible Reading Journals. And I've got a picture of the app for you that we can put up on the slide. You can, right now if you want, you can go to... Uh, Permission, pull out your phone, go to your app store, and type in CBR, Community Bible Reading, CBR Journal, and you'll see that little icon pop up, and for free, you can follow along. It's going to give you um, a schedule for reading, one New Testament chapter a day and one Old Testament chapter a day. If you want to buy the paper copy, they're in the back. Stacy has them. They're 10 bucks. You can pick one of those up. But we've been reading through the Old Testament and the New together. And the last three days we look at 2 Samuel 14, 15, and 16. Chip Dodd, in his book, The Voice of the Heart, said, Life is not simply about being happy. It's about living fully in intimate relationship with ourselves, with others, and with God, which is a joy unto itself, even in pain. Most of us are completely fine with that statement and even encouraged by it until you get to the last three words, even in pain. 
I'll be honest in saying that I don't like pain. Um, when I think about pain, whether it's uh, the pain of relationships or the just physical pain, like I'm, like I have a, I woke up with a sore throat this morning. So my first thought when I encounter pain is, and it says a lot about me. Some of you want to identify, some will. My first thought is, Taylor, you'll identify. I don't have time for this. Okay? Uh, this is inconvenient. And so for me, I'll typically try to move through pain just as quickly as possible, whether that means fixing it somehow. And I'm talking relational pain here. I'm talking physical pain. So I'll try to fix it. If that doesn't work, sometimes I'll just kind of amble over to this place in, of pretending in which I try to believe that it's not really painful. I don't see it. I don't feel it. I don't hear it. That's called denial. It never works. What it always does is makes things worse. But I, I typically try that. None of us enjoy pain, right? But pain can be one of God's greatest megaphones, is what C.S. Lewis said. He shouts to us in our pain. And God uses it in unmistakable ways. The problem for most of us is that we really don't trust God when it comes to facing Him in our pain. It's easy to blame God. It's easy to believe that He isn't with us or that He has abandoned us. And in today's story, we find David trusting God in his pain. I've entitled today's message, Trusting God in Disaster. You've probably heard sermon series on the life of David if you've been in the church very long. And you remember David and Goliath. But the pastor might not have even taught on these chapters. And you notice I'm flying through them. We're hitting three today, right? Because <laughs> who wants to say, hey, we're going to be talking about pain for the next three weeks, right? Does anybody want to hear that? So we're hitting three today. But it's important that we look at our pain, that there's a lot we can learn. We hear messages regularly, and I would even say mostly, on what it means to be an overcomer. On what it means to have vision for your life. But what do you do when life seems to fall apart around you? How do you respond in the midst of disaster? And if you aren't there, praise God. I am not wanting you to be there. But you live enough life and disaster will find you. It'll find you. The big idea today is we can trust God even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Now, if, if you have been following along where we're at, in chapter 14, if you read this week, you'll remember that Absalom, David's son, has returned to Jerusalem. He's returned with the help of Joab. And Absalom lives in Jerusalem in his own house, and he doesn't, uh, he doesn't appear before David for two years. If you're not familiar with this story, you probably have heard of David and Bathsheba. David slept with another man's wife. He had the man killed. And his, son, his sons begin to wreak havoc over his whole kingdom. One son sleeps with his half-sister. Another son is angry for two years until he kills his brother for sleeping with his half-sister. It wouldn't even make it on Days of Our Lives. It would have been cut. It's too just grotesque. 
And in the midst of all of this, Absalom has killed his brother, and then he finally comes back to Jerusalem, and he's welcomed back, but he doesn't appear before David for two years. And then he finally gives this ultimatum in which he comes to David and he says, Restore me or kill me. And David restores him. And so we pick up in verses 24 through 26 of chapter 15 in which David has restored Absalom. And over the next couple of years, Absalom has in a very cunning way influenced the men, not only of Jerusalem, but of all of Israel. And they are now following Absalom instead of following David. And we pick up in verses 24 through 26 of chapter 15 in which David and his faithful men are being forced to flee from Jerusalem before they're attacked and slaughtered by Absalom's coup. His very son who is seeking to destroy him. Look at verse 24. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. If we're going to trust God in the midst of grief, in the midst of what feels like disaster, then we're going to have to learn what it means to face God in those times and to trust Him. David, he faces God. Consider for just a minute David's situation. It's hard to believe that he has fallen. He's on the run again. Not from King Saul, but from his own son, Absalom. David's servants... They're quickly throwing supplies in a bag to escape Jerusalem. And they don't know where they're headed. They're on the run again. Like old times fugitives from his very own son. I mean, I can't begin to imagine the kind of fear that must have overwhelmed David. He knew what it was like to run from Saul for years upon years upon years. And now he's taking those past experiences and all the emotion from them are flooding back into his heart and he's projecting those past emotions on his future and he's beginning to think, now I'm on the run again, not from King Saul, who I love, but now from my very own son, Absalom. can't think of a much worse case scenario. But hear what David says as he, as he leaves the city. Consider his words as he redirects the priest to carry the Ark of the Covenant back into the city of Jerusalem. So David's there. He's fleeing. They're grabbing everything that they can take with them, including the Ark of the Covenant. And David says, no, stop. David refuses to see the Ark of the Covenant as a good luck charm. He refuses to see it as, if I hold on to this, and God's going to be for me. God's going to make everything okay. How often do we see our relationship with God as a good luck charm that helps us to make life work? 
you hear it in all the cheap cliches that are not found in the scriptures. When God closes the door, he opens a window. One writer said, God may want you to realize you had the wrong address all along. I thought that was pretty clever. How about the cliche, you've never made, uh, you're never more safe than when you're in God's will. Even though in Luke 21, Jesus would say, you'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you will be put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Sound safe? How about let go and let God? It's just that simple. Just let go and let God. Everything's going to work out. J.I. Packer says we should say trust God and get going. God wants us to be involved in this work. How about this last one? God will not give you more than you can handle. You live enough life and you try to follow God and you'll quickly realize that you get to the end of your rope really fast. The truth is, and thankfully God will not give us more than He can handle as we trust in Him. You hear in all these Christian cliches, you hear the way in which we kind of treat God almost like a lucky charm, like a rabbit's foot. If we hold on to God, then He's going to make our life work out. For our good, not for His good, for our good. But David doesn't do that. David has no backup plan. He's trusting in God's judgment, even if it meant that life would be unpleasant. He trusted that God knew what was best and would do what was best. Even in times of disaster. David understood that part of this disaster could be his own doing. And God's judgment against him for his sin with Bathsheba. Do you remember chapter 12 verse 10? In which the prophet Nathan said, And the sword will never leave your house. So David came to realize that in the midst of disaster, which by the way, as we all should realize in the midst of our own disaster, when we look to God and we say, why did you allow this to happen? We should come to realize that God is allowing some things to happen, not because of what God has done, but because of what we have done. We're pretty slow to look in the mirror on that one, aren't we? Like, I'm, I'm good. This is all on God. This couldn't have anything to do with me. David doesn't do that. He has no backup plan. He trusts God's judgment, even if it means that life would be unpleasant. How often do we treat God kind of like he's Siri or Alexa? Think about that for a minute. I mean, we call on him when we get in a bind instead of walking with him in humble relationship, walking with him daily. David shows us what it looks like to face God And to really believe in his providence and in his sovereignty. That God knows what is best. And that he is accomplishing his will in our lives. Even in the midst of our disaster. David was living in complete reliance on God's grace. That's a place of submission. Disaster and pain have this way of humbling us. And reminding us that God's grace is all we ever had in the good times of life and in the bad times of life. David faces God. He doesn't accuse God. He faces God and he trusts God's judgment. But he also faces his own hurt. And I want you to really pay attention to verses 30 and 31. David faces his own hurt. Look at verse 30 of chapter 15. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered 
Get that picture for just a second. He's a, the king. He's got these, these scragglers that are following him. If you read through chapter 15, it's all the ites that followed him. It's like, I can't even pronounce them. The Cherethites and the Pelethites and all 600 Gittites. The, all these people who had been faithful, all these clans to David, they're following him. And instead of David being the chief cheerleader and kind of beginning a pep rally and like trying to rah-rah the troops, David, the king, is barefoot with his head covered and he's weeping. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up weeping as they went. What kind of crew is this? David's weeping, he's crying like a baby. He's got hundreds of people who are following him out of the kingdom. And by the way, verse 31, it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, Oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. So you get this picture where not only is David walking out, it says he gets to the very last house as they're leaving Jerusalem. He's standing there and all these different clans are passing before him. And he's standing there and he's weeping and then he's going up the Mount of Olives and even the people who have been closest to him, in terms, who have given him guidance, he gets the report, they've gone back to Absalom. They're no longer with him. Think about that. David faces his hurt. He's weeping, he's barefoot, his head is covered. He doesn't rush off with the Ark of the Covenant. He's not formulating some plan how he would prove to the people of Israel that he was truly God's anointed king. He's not trying to influence those in power to follow him. He didn't remind everybody of the battles he had won when he was younger. Instead, he faced his hurt and was sorrowful. He mourned and he grieved. And this is very difficult. This requires a huge amount of vulnerability to be willing to admit when we are hurt. Most of us have no idea how to admit when we're really hurt. And when I look back on my ministry experience, I, I just see hurt after hurt after hurt. And I, I don't tell those stories very much. I left Memphis hurt. I was part of a megachurch. And I was a mess, and they were a mess, and I left hurt. And my marriage was a mess back in 2000 and. Seven. And we had, Katie and I had been through about two years of counseling, and we had, like, talked about divorce at one point, and we went to Nashville to plant a church. Sounds like a smart thing to do, right? Life's a mess, go plant another church. We've already been a part of a church plant. And, man, we put everything we had in that, in that thing. And uh, we bought a house after a couple of years, and... Um, We'd even adopted uh, our third son from Ethiopia about six months before the guy I was co-pastoring with, my best friend at the time, came to me and said, this isn't working. And uh, he, the way he handled that was wrong, and the way I had handled a lot of our leadership up to that point had been wrong, and we were both a mess. And for the next three months, man, I hurt. Like, I mean, my... my my guts were twisted inside of me every day. 
because I knew that we had a church about a little bigger than this, and it was about half full of college students, and we felt like if we told them what was going on between us, it would split the church. And I just kept all that mess bottled up inside of me. And for the next three months, what we just sought the Lord. And here's the beauty. When you're really hurting and you face God and you trust God, like I remember being so mad at my buddy Mike and kind of so mad at myself that I had let our family get into this leadership situation where we had gotten backed in a corner and one more time life was in a mess and life was spinning out of control and I didn't know what the heck I was going to do. But I can remember turning to God and just feeling hopeless and saying, God, I don't know where I'm going to get a salary from. I don't know where I'm going to be in ministry. I don't know how we're not going to screw this church up and split it. It's about four years old. God, I need your direction. And I instantly, I remember the Starbucks I was at, south of Nashville. I remember instantly the Lord, not speaking to me audibly, but just giving me a sense of saying, it's okay, you can let this go, I've got something else for you, let Mike have it. And I didn't want to hear that. It was clear, I wrote it down, there was no mistaking it. And I went and told Katie, and she was like, I don't know. And I mean, it. I think about those three months of trying to discern, God, what do you want to do? And trying to find a church there that needed a teaching pastor and try to figure out how to make life work and thinking worst case scenario, like there's this little farm we can move to in Alabama that one of our families have and we'll just live out in the middle of nowhere if we have to for a little while because it's rent free. Like what's the worst thing that could happen? Have you ever gotten there in your life? Where you're like, where you're like if she leaves me and she takes the dog, like the worst thing that could happen, right? Like it would still be okay. That's kind of where we were at. And I just remember God being faithful. God being faithful to meet us. It wasn't pleasant. But just taking my hurts to Him. David shows us what it's like to face our hurts and to mourn and to grieve. And that's very difficult. It requires a huge amount of vulnerability. See, I haven't been comfortable to talk about that. Until now, because it's been eight years, and look around, it feels like we're okay. But it's hard to be vulnerable. It's hard to face our hurts. But without it, we won't experience healing. And that means we won't be living a full life with a full heart. Just like somebody who breaks their leg, does it do them any good to say, Man, it doesn't look that bad. You know, like a, a full fracture, and it's like sticking out to the side. Like, man, just like pull that thing over straight. Like, just don't think about it. Does that do any good? What do they need? They need that bone to be set back in place, and they need a cast. Why is it in our personal lives when we face hurt that we think that we're just called to take it on the cheek? I mean, that's kind of what they taught me in seminary. They said, don't get very close to people because they're going to hurt you. And when they do, just, just take it on the cheek. You're just going to take, take one for the team, the kingdom team. I know pastors who live life that way. They have no friends inside of their church. 
And their church doesn't know them. And they don't experience life. And they don't teach from a heart that's fully engaged in the Scriptures. They might know the truths of theology in their head, but you don't see them passionately living in light of that throughout the week. They can tell you all the right answers, but they have no idea what it looks like to live it. Because our hearts have to be engaged, not just our heads. And we have to be willing to look at our hurts. If we aren't willing to admit our hurt, it produces resentment toward God or others or both. And we don't heal. Some of you have been walking through life for years and years and years with the resentment building. Chip Dodd in his book, The Voice of the Heart, says resentment is the product of trying to find solutions that reject hurt. When hurt is denied, minimized, or projected onto another, it becomes resentment. And that's when we start building cases against other people. Against the one who did us wrong. We justify acting towards, we justify acting out towards the person because they deserve it. That's what we think. Deep down we believe if they are made to pay, it will take away our hurt. If we can make them pay, somehow we would hurt less and we would find healing. The truth is, it's not the feeling of hurt that causes us to sin. It's our unwillingness to feel the feeling of hurt that causes us to sin. If I'm unwilling to experience my hurt, it will harden into defensiveness and unwillingness and a revenge-seeking kind of behavior in which I will want what is worst for the individual who has hurt me, believing that somehow that will justify me. Here's what's so valuable about David's grief. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up weeping as they went. Because David was willing to be vulnerable and to admit his hurt, he was able to lead all of his followers to both admit their hurt and to enter into grief with him. Not blaming, not resentment, but sadness. And that's where healing begins. When we're willing to feel the sadness. Of the ways in which we've been hurt. David put one bare foot in front of the other. And he slowly wept as he climbed the Mount of Olives. The greater David, King Jesus, would also walk up this same Mount of Olives the night before his crucifixion. And he would weep too. Not because of his own sin, but instead because he would carry the sins of the world on his shoulders as he anticipated dying on the cross for your sin and for mine and suffering the judgment and the wrath of God. Jesus experienced hurt and sadness and loneliness and grief all because of the sin of the world. Not because of his sin, but because of your sin and my sin. So he had every reason in the world to resent God and to resent you and me. But that's not what he chose to do. Instead, he grieved. And in his grief, as he said, Father, may this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, he faced God, right, in disaster. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will, even if it's unpleasant. And when he faced God, we see 
that he received the, the gift of hurt is that we get healing and courage. The gift of actually feeling our hurts and being healed is that we receive courage. Because what does Jesus say? Jesus says, I'm grieving. I'm sweating drops of blood. I'm lonely. The disciples have left me. I'm anticipating the darkness of when the Father will turn His face away and I will carry the sins of all of mankind on my shoulders on the cross. And as He says, but not my will, but your will be done. Jesus faces His hurt and the Father sends an angel to minister to Him and in that moment, He finds courage. When we face our hurts and when we receive healing, we find courage and hope to move on. And that's what we see David doing. If you continue reading in chapter 15, you will see that David reaches this point in which he feels his hurt, but then he goes on the offensive. He gets a couple of his men to go back and he comes up with a plan for how they'll begin to hear from Absalom and report back to him what's going on. David doesn't just act like a victim. No, he goes on the offensive because he has received courage. Now, when we're facing disaster, the last thing I want to point out, I want to do it really quick, is if you look at chapter 16, David faces criticism. And and this is is just a crazy story. Just quick, if I read it to you. Verse 5. When King David came to Barun, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. Imagine this. David and his hundreds of people walking out of Jerusalem. He's got this guy that comes from Saul's family and he's throwing, he's throwing out curses at him. He's not just throwing curses. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out! Get out, you man of blood, you worthless man! The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you've reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil's on you, for you're a man of blood. This is the man who he, he, he thinks he's got his theology right, but he has no connection emotionally to his heart. He's just pouring out vengeance and, and vile on David. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. This this guy, Abishai, you know, they say that marines, sometimes they call them jarheads, are not that smart. This guy was smart. He had figured out. Most times, if you cut somebody's head off, they stop talking. So he said, that's how I'm going to resolve this issue. And when we're hurt, don't be honest. Sometimes that's about what we want. If I just chopped your head off your body, maybe you'd learn how to shut your mouth. You ever felt that way towards somebody? But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruah? If he's cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. 
So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan and he refreshed, refreshed himself. In the midst of facing disaster in our lives, we have to face criticism because we're going to receive a lot of criticism. David was willing to accept the fact that God might be using this man in order to teach him. In every criticism that we believe, we should step back and say, I'm not giving you complete openness to speak everything that you say is true, but I should look to see, is there a nugget of truth that should be applied to my life and what you are saying? David didn't defend himself, but he humbly allowed this man to shout and throw stones and fling dust at him. But let me, what do you think, what do you think the people thought about all this? Let me ask you this. What happens when you see a leader who's willing to admit that they're flawed and that they get it wrong sometimes? What happens when you see a leader who doesn't always have to defend themselves but can leave it up to you to make a decision about who they are? Even greater, look at verse 12. There's something that takes place in verse 12 that's just simply amazing. I want to end with this. David says, it may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. There's three different interpretations that could be. Uh, it, it could be that he's saying that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me or that the Lord will look on my affliction. I believe he's likely saying that the Lord will look on my iniquity. Those three different Hebrew words are very similar. Why did those who were writing these, you know, copying different transcripts, how did they mess it up along the way? Similar words. I think iniquity makes the least sense in this passage. And I agree with Ralph Winter, the commentator, who says, it doesn't make sense to put iniquity in. That's probably why they changed it along the way. David seems to be saying in verse 12, it may be that the Lord will look either on the wrong done to me, or that the Lord will look on my iniquity, and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. How does that make any sense? That David would say, it may be that the Lord may look on all my past sins. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me. I don't know which of those it is, but David had this mysterious confidence that God perhaps just might show him grace. David confesses, God's free in this matter. He may or he may not. But David seems to have a kind of confidence that even in the midst of the worst of times, that God would show him grace. We cannot begin to imagine how deep and warm and longing God's compassion is for us. Even when he disciplines us in our sin. And David knew that. David had experienced that. Some of you are here today and you hear this story and life's going well and praise God for that. But some of you are here today and life's not going that well. And... You're struggling in the midst of, maybe it's not disaster, not yet, or maybe it is. 
that as you struggle, you're wondering, where is God at in the midst of this? And how could, how could I have gotten to this place? Recently heard a friend teach on Psalm 23. It's Jeff Schulte. He's going to be here in a couple weeks. And Jeff said, we love Psalm 23. And listen, I've, known, I've had Psalm 23 memorized for the last 40 years. And I've never really thought about this. Think about how Psalm 23 goes. The Lord is my shepherd. I mean, it's beautiful. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me by streams of water. He restores my soul. What a good shepherd. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. I mean, everything up to this point is great, right? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. I've always heard that phrase and thought, even though I walk... Because I, either I walked off the path or life, you know, the shadow of death kind of came at me. But, but the shadow of death, like, I've always kind of felt like either I, I got myself there or it, it just all came out. How do, you, how do you make your way, even in the valley of the shadow of death, how did you get there? Who was leading you? The psalmist seems to be saying, you're in the valley of the shadow of death because the shepherd led you there. That's hard. That God would lead us in our lives to places of pain. In His providence and the fact that He is sovereign, that He knows not what is good for what makes our life turn out great, but what is best. For his kingdom and for his glory. And I believe that does make our life turn out great. Because it brings great joy. Even in the valley of the shadow of death. The shepherd when he leads us there. David has come to conclude and to find out. That even in the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. For the shepherd is still with me. And that's what David could conclude on this day. That guy can, he can follow us along the way. He can throw rocks at us. He can throw curses at us. He can kick dust on us. And David didn't turn and say, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. No. By the way, that's not true at all. David said, in the midst of my hurt and in the midst of my pain, I'm going to turn to God. And I'm going to trust that God will be gracious to me. Even if it feels unpleasant. Even if he never brings me back to Jerusalem. It's okay. The ark can stay there. Because God's presence belongs with his people. I'm going to trust God. Because he is gracious. And he is with me. And that is the God who we have as our shepherd this day. Let's pray.